Uh, we left off uh, last week by asking the question, uh, because it, it certainly was in what we discussed last week, a real anger or a real hatred on the part of Jonah toward the Ninevites or the Assyrians. Um, he just didn't want to go to them. It was very obvious in our reading. And uh, I ask you to think about it and study about it. I wonder if any of you have an opinion that you'd want to share with the group um, as to why he was so angry and so hateful uh, toward the Ninevites or the Assyrians. Anybody want to come up with an answer? I heard two or three pretty good ones after uh, study, but anyone uh, care to share with us? He did not like them. And uh, remember we talked about from history, we know that the Assyrians uh, used mob tactics when they when they fought, when they came into cities, they would overrun the city. Uh, they would they would attack in such a way that that people would oftentimes commit suicide rather than face their judgments. Uh, we know that that they like to torture people by uh, burying them in the sand with their head up and and tongs through their tongue. Uh, so that they would go mad before they would die. Uh, they were a wicked people. Now, don't, I think we all realize that. But Jonah seemed to have uh, an unusual dislike for them. And, and someone came up with the theory, maybe, maybe uh, you didn't hear it or not, maybe uh, you weren't here last week, but uh, there are some who feel like that, that possibly Jonah had firsthand felt the, the brunt of that cruelty. Um, Maybe a, maybe a daughter, uh, maybe a wife, maybe a mother, uh, maybe a father had experienced that torture. Maybe he'd seen it firsthand. Uh, we don't know, and it's not in the scripture, and, and we're not saying that it is, but very possibly something like that could have happened to him. But he sure didn't want them to come to God. He sure didn't want them to, to hear the truth. He certainly didn't go when God told him to go. In fact, he went exactly the opposite direction. He didn't go where God told him to go. He got out of there. Uh, now, we also found out last week that he was craving authenticity in his life as a prophet because he was very fearful that God would revoke what he had prophesied. And so he was looking for authenticity. And it would look kind of bad to go back to your, back to your people, back to the Israelites, and, and what he said was reversed by the sovereign will of God. So some of that was happening too, but a lot of things happening with him but he had a problem with them. And you remember one of the lessons we taught? One of, the, one of the key lessons, I think, in Jonah is this. As Christians, we can't be qualifiers of who will come to know the truth. We can't be qualifiers. And I think I said last week there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us because sometimes we will qualify. We'll say, well, certainly this person is not worthy of hearing the truth. They're too bad. They're too much a sinner. Uh, don't give the truth to them. They're not going to hear the truth. And, and I said, what kind of an image comes before you when you think of Shirley MacLaine in the New Age? Are, are you like me sometimes saying, well, it'd be impossible for her to come to Christ? Well, I'm qualifying. I'm qualifying who, the who can and who cannot come to Christ. What about uh, Bill Clinton? What do you, what do you think? What do you, mercy, mercy, somebody says. Mercy, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm privileged to know this information. A guy, a very good minister in Chicago by the name of Bill Hybels is ministering to Bill Clinton right now. What if God would select him 
What if God would so choose him and use Bill to bring him into the family of God? Would we say, no, not him? Well, that's what Jonah was saying about the Ninevites. Um, what about Hugh Hefner? Now, certainly that guy would have no chance. He would have no chance to completely eliminate him. And other people like that. What about O.J. Simpson? You know, still everybody says guilty, 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 and all the facts seem to in indicate that. We wouldn't want him to come to Christ, would we? Would we not qualify? Well, if we would do that with anybody, we'd be with Jonah, you see. We would be qualifying people as to who should be recipients of the grace and mercy of God. And that's very dangerous. It's dangerous for me. It's dangerous for anyone to feel like they're qualifiers. Uh, I read some good stuff from Martin Lloyd-Jones about grace and mercy. I want to share it with you. Uh, it says that... Um, let me look at this too. Grace is associated with men and their sins, while mercy is associated with men and their misery. Grace looks down on sin as a whole, but mercy looks upon the miserable consequences of sin with a sense of pity, plus the desire to relieve the suffering. Grace, it's the grace of God that makes us merciful. But if I'm not merciful, there's only one explanation. And that's that I probably have never understood the grace and the mercy of God. What's one of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, If I know that I'm a debtor to mercy alone, Jim, you like that one, don't you? If I'm a debtor to mercy alone, if I know that I'm a Christian solely because of the free grace of God, there should be no pride left in me. There should be nothing vindictive in me. There should be no uh, of me insisting my rights. Rather, as I look upon others, if there is anything in them that is unworthy or that is a manifestation of sin, I should have the great sorrow for them. Great sorrow for them in my heart. Every one of us that know Christ have been to that well of grace and mercy and have received it. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful to experience that. But we should never be qualifiers of who gets it and who doesn't get it. We should allow God, the sovereign God, to make those decisions. We finished at verse 8 last week, so I would like to draw your attention to verse 9. First chapter, verse 9. I'm going to go through a, a, uh, in sections a couple verses at a time and make some quick comments about them, and I really want to get into the last part of the first chapter and into the second chapter. So look at verse 9 and 10 with me. Jonah, chapter 1, 9 and 10. And remember that uh, they've already, they cast the lots. They, they know that, that Jonah is, the, is responsible here uh, for their predicament. The, the sailors who are Gentiles uh, know what the problem is. And verse 9, so he said to them, I am a Hebrew, Jonah speaking about himself, and I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So in, this, in these verses, Jonah answers the sailors' questions. And he leaves with the sailors no doubt 
that God is responsible for their crisis. He is too. Jonah is too. But he leaves no doubt that God has put him in that predicament because he's trying to get Jonah's attention. And also the fear of the Lord is brought out in both verses. Notice in verse 9, uh, Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Look at verse 10. Uh, the, then the men were exceedingly afraid. And I just thought about that, that, that thing, fear, that... that a lot of people uh, run from or, or they don't want to be, they don't want to say they, they fear the Lord. I'm glad to tell you tonight that I fear the Lord. I'm afraid of, of Him. I also know He loves me. I never have doubted that since I trusted Christ. I know He loves me, but I still fear Him. He's God. I, I, I stand in awe of Him. And I'm so glad to, to see that there. They, they were a fear. They had fear in their lives. And I, I came across a verse in my study which says, Unite my heart to fear thy name in Psalms. Unite my heart. Bring my heart together to fear thy name. You see, a lot of people are double-minded. They're not single-minded. They're here one day and they're there the next day. And you have a hard time pinning them down. They're wishy-washy. And the psalmist says, Unite, bring me together to fear the name of the very living God. We're not to have divided hearts. We're to be single-minded in our, our pursuit of God. And there's nothing wrong with fearing Him. He's not, he's not out to get me, no. But I still fear Him. I still stand in awe before Him. And I hope you do too. I think it's a good thing. Verse 11 and 12. Then they said to Him, What shall we do to you <clears throat> that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous by the moment. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. So the sailors, the mariners, have identified the source of their trouble. Remember they threw lots earlier? But they're still looking for a solution, and Jonah gives them the solution. He says, it's me. I'm responsible. It's me. Throw me in. And so verse 13 and 14, we see these words. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. And therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They strive to keep from casting Jonah, they tried a, another plan, even though he told them he was responsible. And then they cry out to the Lord. And notice it's the Lord. Before they cried out to their gods, now they've come in to, to realize that there is a true and living God. And they cry out to that. They cry out to our living Lord, not their gods. Now when they talk about innocent, they're not saying Job's guiltless. They know he's not. And Job knows he's not guiltless. What they're concerned about is them. They did not want to be responsible for taking another person's life. And so that's where they, they talk about innocent blood is them having Jonah's blood upon them for throwing him into the sea and being killed. And notice in the last part of the 14th verse, O Lord, you've done as it pleased you. These Gentiles who know very little bit about God already are talking about the sovereignty of God. You have done as it pleased you. 
Now, 15 and 16, it says, They picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the, mer- the men feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. So obedience does bring predicted results. The sea calms, the sea gets quiet, and the sailors are filled with awe, yet fear. And it says that they worship. They worship the God that they have, they have come to know. And then verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord prepared a great fish three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. Y'all know there's some New Testament passages which talk about this very thing. Do you know where they're found? Anybody know where the passage is found about three days and three nights? Like Jonah, when the Pharisees came and asked for a sign? Anybody know it? I'll show you. Matthew 12. Turn to Matthew 12. Hold your place in Jonah because we'll be back. But let's, let's uh, since they talk about the three days and three nights, let's look in Matthew. Matthew, the 12th chapter, 38th verse. The scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they say, Teacher, verse 38, we want to see a sign from you. In the Old Testament, oftentimes you would see signs. Not many signs in the, in the New Testament. In 39, Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation, he's speaking of them, seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except, one exception, and he speaks of Jonah. The only exception is the sign of the prophet Jonah. That'll be the only sign you'll get. And he goes on to say, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he goes on to add a little bit to it, because the Ninevites, again, were the ones that Jonah was supposed to preach to. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with your generation, this generation, and condemn it, because... The Ninevites, or the Assyrians, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And looky here, we have a greater than Jonah here. None other than Jesus Christ himself. So that's the, that's the sign thing. And, and people have thought about that. What does that represent? What is, what is Jesus trying to teach? And, and there are those who think it's, it's repentance. That he's, the sign is the preaching of Jonah, which was repentance. But a sign doesn't consist of what men do, but it's, a sign is the intervention of the power of God in the course of events. So it can't be repentance here. Besides that, from the very beginning, Jesus preached repentance. That was a part of his normal message. So it's not repentance when it talks about the sign. I think it's this. It refers to Jonah's deliverance from the belly of the fish. And Jesus is comparing. He draws a comparison between Jonah's experience and his future experience. Jonah, as we read, was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. And Jesus is making a comparison to his resurrection. 
Now here's the thing. They both appear alive three days later. Jesus by resurrection. He was the resurrection and the life. He came, he came out of that grave. He was dead and he's now alive. Now here's a question. What about Jonah? Did he die in the fish or was he alive? We know he spent three days and three nights. We just read it back in Jonah. Three days, three, night, three nights, and the body of that big fish. Jesus says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in that fish, I will be three days and three nights in the earth. I will resurrect. Good question, but one I can't answer. Did he die or was he alive? Now, if he died in that fish and was resurrected, is that a miracle? Absolutely. But if he lived for three days and three nights in that fish, is that a miracle? Yes. So we got a miracle either way. Uh, but it's an, an interesting thing to think about. And, and I think that the scripture wants to challenge us and, and wants us to, to study it. Now, our pastor is absolutely right when he says when the scripture is absent, we should be, when it's silent on something, we should be silent. And it doesn't tell us exactly the answer, but I'm the kind of person that always keeps asking myself the question. So what do you think? Well, think about that. I want to tell you something, though, about fish and some animals and some people. Now, maybe you have studied this. Maybe you already know this. What I'm going to tell you in a moment is not going to startle you. But the first time I read it, it really, it really grabbed my attention. Because uh, we're talking about can a man live for a period of time in a fish? Because if he lived, if he was alive, it was three days and three nights. Listen to this. Probably the, the big fish here was either a, a sulfur bottom whale or a whale shark. You know what's significant about those two? They had no teeth. That's right. A sulfur bottom whale and a whale shark have no teeth. And it says he was swallowed by a huge fish. Did you know that the Cleveland Plain dealer reports that a dog was lost overboard from a ship found in the head of a whale six days later barking? Barking. It's been reported and proven. Did you know that in the museum in Beirut, Lebanon, there is a whale shark that is exhibited, three of them. One swallowed a whole horse, another a reindeer minus horns, and a third a sea cow as size of an ox. They're on display there. And then there are two that I know of, people. Listen to these stories. There was a man in the Falkland Islands near South America. Uh, and a French scientist by the name of Parfield writes about this man. His name was James Bartley. And they thought he drowned at sea. But 48 hours later, they made a catch of a whale. And when they cut up the whale, he was found unconscious, but alive. 48 hours. 48 hours. There's another one. Literary Digest, England. London, England, 1926. In the English Channel, a sailor was trying to harpoon a shark, and he fell overboard. 
He was not rescued until 48 hours later, 48 hours later, when the shark was slain open and he was found unconscious, suffering from shock, but alive. He was taken to a hospital and released four hours later. He was exhibited in the London Museum for years as Jonah of the 20th century. Two examples. Now, either way, either way, it's a miracle. Either way. And I don't have the answer for you, but it sure would be something interesting to study. You know, it's interesting about the guy in England. They said that, that his physical appearance was very odd. That he was, his body was completely devoid of any hair. He was hairless from his experience. It also said he had patches of yellowish brown colored which covered his entire skin. Uh, he, had a, he had an eccentric look. Now, think about Jonah, who went through not 48 hours, three days, three nights. That's 72, 72 hours. Do you think maybe as he relates to the Assyrians in Nineveh in the next chapter, that he might have said something about his experience? We're gonna see his prayer in a minute in the second chapter. How did he look? How did he look when he began to tell his story as he went through Nineveh? Do you think he had a, a funny glow to him or a funny look to him? You think there was something weird about him? He very well could have got their attention. I know he would have got my attention had I been there. But let me say this. If two men could exist for two days and two nights in a sea monster, could not a prophet of God under his direct care and protection uh, stand the experience of a day and a, and a night longer? Yeah. Either answer might be the correct answer. I'll leave that up to you. Second chapter, first verse. Back to Jonah, if you would. I've got to find it here. Okay, first verse. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. From the fish's belly. When did he pray? When do we pray? I tell you when I pray, as soon as I'm in crisis. As soon as I go into crisis, I pray. Now, did he pray when he hit the water? Had he started his prayer then? Uh, when he, did he pray when he got in? Obviously, he, was, he prayed in the fish, because it says so. The, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And we have the prayer in the second chapter. But what about when he started? And what about us when we pray? Well, I've had a couple of calls on my life. I didn't become a Christian until I was 19. But I was raised in religious circumstances and God was knocking on my door. He was working in my life. My life. And I remember the first experience was at 15 when I shouldn't have been with this guy. But this guy gets his driver's license at 16 and drives to the next town. It's Lawrence, Kansas, home of the, home of the Jayhawks. And so we rode up, I think it was the first time the guy had ever been behind a wheel to drive a car. I mean, it was weird. He was doing weird things. But anyhow, I was stupid enough to get in with him. And we came back on a, an old country road of gravel. And he came to a hairpin turn trying to take it at about 75. And we just, missed, we just started rolling. And we didn't have seat belts. This is a few years ago. I want to tell you, I wasn't a Christian, but I was praying. I can remember praying as that thing rolled. And 
a lot of my prayers before I came to Christ were, God, let's make a deal. I'm in a terrific predicament here. God, can we make a deal? But I, I prayed. I prayed. Believe me, I prayed a lot in the time that we rolled and I got out of the car and found out that I was okay. You know my hand. You know my finger. Yeah. I accidentally caught it in the saw. And I can remember the drive to the hospital. Boy, I was praying everything I knew. Everything that I knew, I was praying. And I think we, I think we have a tendency to do that. We, we get with it. When did Jonah pray? I don't know. I, I heard a, uh, an evangelist who shared a story about the call of God on his life that's even more bizarre than my two stories. Um, he had run from God like Jonah. When he was a young man, God was really trying to, trying to get his attention and trying to come into his life. And he ran from him. And the guy ended up working for a sawmill. And he was assigned the job of, of taking these long pieces of timber and putting them on the carriage that would then roll down. It took 45 seconds. And then that log would come down to the stationary saw that would just cut it right in two. So there's about a 45-second time period in which he, he said he would take a hook, hook the log, pull it over on the carriage, and then release it to go down and be cut in two. You got the picture? 45 seconds. This guy ran from God, kind of like Jonah. Well, the night before, they had gone halfway, and for some reason they stopped working. And so the next morning, they started where they left off, and so they had this log half cut. And I, I can't explain how it happened, but the, the, the saw started going, and he started working with that particular log, and his index finger got caught in the crease. And he was, he, he said his head was facing the saw with his index finger out there and he started moving toward the saw and he was cinched as tight as he could be. He was going nowhere. And he's looking at that saw blade. And he, he said in 45 seconds, he prayed more than sometimes he'd prayed in a year. And he said he knew God's call was upon his life. And what happened was a miracle in a way because when he hit the saw, it whacked off his index finger and released him. And he rolled off the carriage and lived to be a tremendous evangelist. But when do we pray? When did Jonah pray? I think, we get, I think we'll pray quick when we're in an emergency situation. I imagine all of you can testify to that. But let's look at chapter 2. And we're winding down. I'm going to be through in just a few minutes. But I want to get through the, this, this prayer that Jonah prayed, obviously, in the belly of the fish. Now, he may have started a little bit earlier. But the, the, the majority of the prayer was while he was in the belly. And he had how long? Three days and three nights. He had a long time. Whether he died or whether he lived, we don't know for sure. But he had a long time to pray. But I want you to notice uh, what he prayed. And I'm going to make a few comments and then we'll close. Chapter 2, verse 2. Here's how his prayer went. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. He speaks of a grave and death with that word. And you heard my voice praying to God. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And the flood surrounded me. And all your billows and your waves passed over me. Talks about a man in a deep predicament. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. 
Yet I will look again. Those who subscribe to the resurrection theory use that. I will look again as meaning I will rise again towards your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around about me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have, and, I, and underline that if you have a pen, a pen or a pencil, yet you have brought up my life from the pit. I'm going to mention something in a minute. Oh, Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is totally of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Some people say this was added later. Some people say it shouldn't even have been in there. But I think this is a wonderful, wonderful piece of, of uh, scripture here in the second chapter. And obviously you'll note that there are excerpts from the Psalms in there. See, see Jonah know, knew the Psalms. And he, he didn't quote them word for word, but he, he quoted parts of the Psalms as he was in his particular predicament. And I think it's a tremendous piece. And certainly, I think it deserves to be in there. It should be in there. But I'm no expert. But I, I think God wanted it in there. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, isn't it? All of it's profitable. And this is just as profitable as John 3, 16. And it's in there, and I, I think it's wonderful. But here are some of the things I noted from this, this prayer. Um, he's not plagiarizing, even though he doesn't use the Psalms word by word. Um, he's crying for help. He's asking for help. Even though he told the sailors, throw him overboard, I'm the responsible party. He still cries out for help. I want to live. I'd like to live. He asks for God's help. Uh, when he talks about Sheol, he fears being abandoned and being isolated from God. He doesn't want that. Uh, Jonah seems to be a prisoner at sea. And it appears that death by drowning is inevitable. It's going to come. And then 6b. Uh, I mentioned uh, that point on, yet you have brought me up. This is the first time things change for Jonah, if you follow him all the way through. Because he started out going away from God when God told him what to do. And he kept going, not up. But if you follow the narrative, down, down. He went down to Joppa to go down to Tarshish. Got in the ship and went down to the lower part of the ship to get away from everybody down, down. He gets thrown in the water. He's going down, down, down. Verse 6, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed around me forever. Yet you have brought me up. You have brought me up my life from the pit. And that's the way God works. I'm, I, I tell people in, in dealing with, with addictions, that's the way it's got to be. You've got to go down until you realize that God is the only answer. And you look up. And that's, that's, when, that's when changes occur in people's lives that are struggling with addictions and problems. When they finally give up, when they've gone down far enough, they realize there are no answers anywhere except seeing God and looking up 
You have brought me up from the pit. And I would say to you that most people that, that come out healthily from problems like this come out this way, God's way. God's way. They come up out of the pit and they see God. They see God high and lifted up and they realize God is the only answer. Also, the, sa the sailors, uh, like the sailors, jo Jonah also offers his uh, sacrifices. And then he brings the psalm to a, a, a climax by saying, I can't qualify people, God. You're the one that's involved in salvation. You're the one who brings salvation. You're the one who gives the gift of salvation. No one else. And you almost hear him saying, I won't do that anymore. But yet we find out he does. But you almost sense, I'm, I'm through with being your helper in that area, God. I know that you don't need my help. Okay. We are, we are through, but I'd like to draw your attention to something that we'll look at next Wednesday night that's very interesting. And I'm going to pose a question before I pray and let you think about it and study it. Verse 9. He tells, orders Jonah to go back and do it again. Do it right this time, Jonah. Go back and, and, and tell the Ninevites. The Ninevites need to repent. The Assyrians need to repent. Look at verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent? Uh-oh. God changes his mind? Who can tell if God will turn and relent? That's what the king of the Ninevites says to his people. Maybe we can get out of this sinful situation we're in. God has brought judgment, but who can tell? Maybe he'll change his mind. But what about immutability? Immutability. What about the scripture that says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Can God change his mind? We're going to talk about that next week. I may have to bring Jimmy in to help me, but because uh, he's been teaching me th some things about the scriptures. But can God change his mind? Has he ever changed his mind? Does he change his mind? We'll look at that next week. Father, thank you for the lessons that you teach us. And Lord, help us to... to